A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today, my guest is Michael Bungay Stenier. Michael is the author of The Coaching Habit, which is the best-selling coaching book of this century with more than 700,000 copies sold and more than 1,000 five-star reviews on Amazon. His new book, The Advice Trap, Be Humble, Stay Curious, and Change the Way You Lead Forever, is dropping February 29th of this year, 2020. I've had a chance to read this book. I thought it was amazing. His first book, if you haven't heard of it, I encourage you to pick it up for sure, but you can start here with the advice trap. Um, in this conversation, what Michael and I talk about, we talk about easy change versus hard change, how they're different and how you can make the hard change in your life happen. We talk about discovering the deeper commitments and the competing commitments that you might have that could be why you experience change to be so difficult. We talk about a few things that can help you be a more effective coach and not just if your profession is coaching, but a more effective leader, friend, parent, whatever you are. We talk about helping people to uncover whatever the real challenge is for them. And Michael offers a few perspectives about questions, some fantastic questions, how to ask them that can benefit you in virtually any interaction with another human being. Because I've interviewed Michael before, I don't go through the full enlightening lightning round with him here. Instead, I ask him just four questions. No surprise, his answers are profound. His response to how to make a long-term committed relationship work, I thought was amazing. Someone who can speak about authority with that. Michael's been married three decades. And then his view about money, I thought was pretty beautiful as well. Then we move into the conversation about creativity and about promotion and what he shares. Michael could easily offer a masterclass in marketing and promotion, how to take your ideas, put them in some kind of a package that people will be attracted by, want to pick up, they can remember, apply. It's really remarkable. And then what he's done to go about sharing that, getting it out of the world, including his year-long training, The Year of Living Brilliantly, which is 52 diverse and interesting teachers who each teach an essential lesson on how to live a better life delivered over the course of a year. What an incredible giveaway. He also offers on theadvicetrap.com. You can visit that. It's a website, of course, for his new book. There you'll find a questionnaire to find out what is your main advice monster persona. We all have one, Michael asserts, so becoming aware of it, learning to tame it. And then Michael also offers a deep dive video training into how to tame your advice monster once you learn what it is. You can follow Michael on Instagram at MBS underscore works. Oh, and by the way, Michael is the founder of Box of Crayons, a company that helps organizations do less good work and more great work. 
Michael has written for or been featured in numerous publications, including Business Insider, Fast Company, Forbes, The Globe and Mail, The Huffington Post, and many more. So with that, I hope you enjoy this fairly brief, but pretty intense conversation with Michael Bungay Stanier. Michael, welcome back to the School for Good Living. How excellent to be a returning student to the school. I love it. (laughs) Well, today you're the honorary principal. (laughs) So thank you. And last time we started, I asked you, what's life about? And you gave what I thought was a fantastic answer. But today I want to ask, what would the advice monster say life is about? (laughs) You know, in some ways, that, that's a great question because it's, it's going to open up a whole a whole hour of conversation between you and me. But in some ways, it's like I'm not that interested in what the advice monster would say <laughs> okay. because the part of the drive of this new book, The Advice Trap, is to say, look, we're trying to tame our advice monster because while there is always a good place for good advice, it is an overdeveloped muscle for most of us. And where I've ended up as a kind of champion in this world is to say, look, Can we all just stay curious a little bit longer? Can we rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? So if I was going, well, what would the advice monster say? I'm like, less interested in the advice monster, more interested in going. What are the questions that open up a deeper engagement in the life that we live and the life that you have and the life that matters? Mm. And it will be different for different people, you know, even the same person in different parts of their life. I mean, if I'd asked you that question five years ago, what makes for a a life that matters for you five years ago, and I asked you that question now, it'd be really interesting to know how that that answer has shifted because I put money on that it has. Yeah. Yeah, it it has. And I think it shifts less as I get older and I learn more who I am and what I really enjoy and am committed to. But but definitely, it, it still continues to change. Yeah. So- I love one of the things you say in this book, The Advice Trap, and I love the subtitle, Be Humble, Stay Curious, and Change the Way You Lead Forever, which is so powerful. And there's something you say in the book, and you actually mentioned it early as something Peter Block said to you, but you say that coaching is no longer an event. It's a way of being with each other. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So I'll tell a really quick story about this. 12 years ago, I wrote my first book called Get Unstuck and Get Going on the Stuff That Matters. And I was even more unknown than I am these days. So I was like, what do you do when you write a book? <laughs> How do you get anybody to buy it? Because it turns out writing a book is this painful, bloody experience. And then you go, oh, that's the easy bit compared to trying to get people to notice you have a book and to buy the thing. So I'm like, okay, you get famous people to try and write a blurb about it. So I send it out. I just called up some of my heroes, like David Allen, who's a productivity guy, and Peter Block, who's this OD thinker and kind of uh, insightful person who talks about helping people take responsibility for their own lives. And I sent him the book going, I don't know, he's a kind of, he's, A, he's famous, B, he's slightly crusty and grumpy. So I, this is probably not going to work. But he wrote back, how did you know he was crusty when... Oh, I, I've he, seen him facilitate and teach okay. a few times and he's, he's prickly. You know, he's, he's, not, he's, not, he's not looking for the love of the audience at all. I mean, and I admire that. I reached out and his secretary said, sure, I guess, send him the book. And he wrote this thing back going, it's not a profession. It's a way of being with each other. And that struck me as profound and a kind of deep tenant for how I might center my, my own work and my own life. Because it kind of 
Oh, it's such a big question. I'll try <laughs> Shut me down as soon as I start rambling too much, Brian. But let's start with the Beatles. You know, the last line of their last out song and their last album, which is, in the end, the love you make is equal to the love you take, or maybe vice versa. It's like, in the end, your life, the quality of your life comes down to your connections with people. You know, that classic thing, end of life. People are like, what do you wish you had more of? You're like, I wish I'd worked less hard. I wish I had more friends and people I loved and I cared with and I spent more time with them. I'm like, exactly. So easy to say, so hard to do in practice. One of the philosophers whose work I think is simple and profound in this area is uh, Martin Buber. And Martin Buber says, look, two types of relationships, I-it relationships and I-thou relationships. And that I-it relationship is when you kind of, you connect more at a transactional level with somebody or something. You, it's like, let's do the exchange, but I'm seeing you more as an object in that world for me to interact with. And I, thou relationships invites a deeper relationship where you see the person for who they are and you get to show up yourself as the person who you are and you have that kind of meeting like that. It's a, uh, okay, I'm off on a, this is a random tangent conversation, but so I do yoga. I just came back from a yoga class. I tell you something that drives me nuts about yoga, which is at the end of every Western yoga class, the only ones I've ever been to, the, the teacher will inevitably say namaste and the class will go namaste back to them. I mean, here's the thing. Namaste means hello. <laughs> I know it means the spirit in me invites and welcomes and recognizes the spirit in you. But, it, you know, in India, it's, it's a greet. It's a namaste. Hey, how are you doing? Yeah. Not a kind of spiritual blessing and farewell. So it turns out namaste has a, a Californian meaning, which is that, you know, my spirit greets your spirit, and yeah. a, a subcontinent meaning, which is, hey, how are you doing? Anyway, or to say the Californian meaning of namaste, my spirit meets your spirit. It's something I would like a little more of in my life and aspire to, because I think there's traditions of philosophy in life that say this is the way to a better life. All of which is circling around, which is like, so why coaching? Which is yeah. like, ah, so coaching is when you show up with, or being more coach-like, as I like to put it, is showing up being more curious about the person, about yourself, about the, the situation. And it allows you to increase the odds of an I-thou relationship rather than an I-it relationship. So when Peter Block in his casual way dashed this off 12 years ago, and I'm like, ah, oh, it's a thunderbolt through my brain. I was like, okay, I see coaching increasing as a profession. I mean, if it was busy 12 years ago, it's, you know, it's really busy now. Yeah. There's a way that coaching becomes its own niche and a little bit of a privileged niche because if you look at the profile of the world of coaching, it's, there's a lot of middle-class, middle-aged white people involved. I'm, I'm one of them. And I'm like, ah, but if we could spread the impact of coaching and the impact of curiosity just more broadly into relationships. I just think the world is a better place for that. Yeah, I agree with you. And it's part of why I, I'm such a big fan of your work, honestly, is this emphasis on coaching as something that has tremendous value. And when I look in my own life and I think of, and this is true, I think for all of us, of all the things that are concerning or we could commit to, you know, from animal welfare, global warming, human trafficking, like the big issues right into our neighborhoods of helping children learn to read or yeah. you know, just picking up garbage that what I see is if we don't do what you're saying about become less, you know, less judgmental, 
more curious, more compassionate, that I think a lot of that can just stay on the surface. It can just be activity. Yeah. And and so what you're saying about honoring, you know, something in another is really is really, I think, incredibly profound. And it's one of these things that and, and you even have a, a term about this, I think, about hard change versus easy change. You know, it's yeah. it's easy to talk about this, but not always easy to do. And sometimes I think that's because we don't have the language, the concept for it or the language for it. So I yeah. wonder if maybe this is an entry point that can start to give somebody not just a deeper understanding, but an access to be more coach like this hard change versus easy change. Will you talk about that? Sure. I mean, part of the way I think about my work is in some ways to unweird coaching. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, coaching is weird? Oh, I think so. I think, I mean, I think the people who are on the inside of coaching, they're all kind of mad for it, right? They're like, no, I see the light. It's amazing. I'm a coach. You're a coach. This is fantastic. Yeah. And meanwhile, people outside don't know what the hell it is. Exactly. So, I mean, you and I, I mean, we saw each other two, a couple of weeks ago at a, at a gathering of Marshall Goldsmith's coaching people. And it was like, these are all people that don't need to be convinced about coaching. They're right. all like rabid enthusiasts, me, yeah. me being one of them. Yeah. But for normal people, <laughs> they're like, I don't, I don't know. I think I know what coaching is, but I don't really know. It's a term that gets bandied around everywhere. I've met some coaches and honestly, some coaches are a bit weird. They're, you know, they're like hard driving executive coach or a, slightly sadistic sporting coach or a touchy-feely life coach. It can be a bit much. Yeah. And I'm like, let's, let's make coaching less weird, less exclusive, less privileged, and yeah. just go, look, it's a way of shifting your own behavior so you show up being more curious. Yeah. And it turns out that that is easy for, for some of us and hard for some of us. And that's what gets us into the easy change and hard change piece. So let me do a quick teaching piece around that. Please. We are good at easy change. That's why it's easy. And you know, the basic process with easy change is you go, right, here's a, here's a new thing that I've got to master or get my, my head around. And you pick it up and you play around with it. And maybe you watch a video or read a book or listen to a podcast. And you, you, you start off being not that good at it, but you know, a little bit of practice and you kind of get the hang of it. And you get it up to a level of competency. So, for instance setting up my podcast studio is basically easy change. I'm not a technical guy, but I know I bought some microphones and I figured out where to plug them in and I watched a podcast on what button to press and what button not to press. And you know, now I can basically set up a podcast with a little light up here. So I kind of, you get to see the full expression of my pallid skin tone. It's all there. That's easy change. In some ways, it's like downloading an app onto your iPhone. It's an addition to current you. Mm. Hard change is something that we're all familiar with as well. Hard change is when, you know, the best example for many of us is like the New Year's resolution. The New Year's resolution where you're like, it's been my same New Year's resolution for the last five years. And for some reason, that resolution of writing the book or calling my mom or exercising or losing weight or whatever it might be for you, it just is elusive. Even though you've downloaded the app on how to lose weight and you've read the book on how to write a book and you've set up some sort of accountability thing to call your mom, it just doesn't work. That's irritating because you're like, what is wrong with me? Why do I keep struggling with this? This is hard change. And hard change is not downloading the app and kind of adding to the current you. It's when you actually go, you, to make this happen, you need to kind of rewire yourself a bit. Yeah. You're kind of designing 
a version of future you. It's not the app. It's like you need to upgrade your operating system. And so it's more complicated. It's a deeper rewiring. It's not just an adding on. It's a kind of re-engineering of who you are. And I think for some people, when they read the, the last book, The Coaching Habit, and, you know, I get emails and lovely notes all the time of people going, this is so good. I got the seven questions and I started practicing them and things got better with my team and with my family and just, Michael, you're a genius. And of course, I love these notes. They stroke my ego in a perfect way. But there's a whole bunch of people, I'm sure, who go, Michael, I read the book. It's pretty good. And I like the questions. They're pretty good questions. But you know what? I haven't done anything differently as a result of this book. You know, I, I went to the course, I read the book, I still just tell people what to do the whole time. And I'm like, why is that so hard? Because in theory, it's easy. You just go, just be curious a little bit longer. How hard is that? It is hard. It, yeah. means, it means rewiring for some of us. Yeah. And that's why this metaphor of how do you tame your advice monster shows up and becomes a central part of this book because taming your advice monster is a, a, a metaphor, an embodiment of what it means to do the hard change to get curious for some of us. Yeah. And I think that metaphor of saying an app versus an OS, yeah, you know, that really resonates with me. And this also is something that I've seen in relationships, in committed long-term relationships, you know, maybe marriages, where this is something along the lines of what Dr. John Gottman talks about, I think. Oh, I love his stuff, right. Right, yeah. when he says that when he studies couples over decades in some cases, that he finds they're still fighting about the same basic issues, <laughs> you know, the in-laws exactly. or parenting styles or something. Exactly. And and what I wonder is if this is really within our I mean, capability, and maybe I'm asking a question that's either a bit of a softball or a bit unanswerable, but as a practical matter, how can we make hard change? How can we make it stick? Yeah, it is difficult. Here, I think, is the fundamental insight that requires work and vulnerability and exposure and discomfort. You have to do the work to help figure out what the deeper commitments are mm. that keep you behaving the way you currently behave. Mm. So I'll give you an example in a different context. You know, in the, in the new book, I'm, I, I get into these three different commitments, these three different advice monsters. One's a talent advice monster, which is I want to be the one with the answers. I'm committed to be the smart person. The, the other one is uh, save it. You know, it's like I want to be, make sure that nobody fails ever. I'm, I'm committed to rescuing everybody. Mm -hmm. And the third is control it, which is I'm, I'm committed to keeping my finger, you know, knowing everything, <laughs> keeping yeah. control of everything, never letting anything spiral out of control. And, and, and on that, if I can just jump in briefly, yeah. I wonder, because what I understood is your assertion is that we basically all have one that's pre that predominates with us. Just like we might have a, f we tend to fight, we tend to fly, or we tend yeah. to freeze in yeah. a given situation. In this yeah. case, if I understand, you're saying each one of us has a mode that we kind of revert to. My hypothesis, I'm going to put it like that, is that we tend to have, of one of those three, uh -huh. we're going to have one that's particularly familiar to us. Okay. But I, if I look at myself, I'm like, oh, I like all three of these advice monsters. <laughs> you know, <it's> yeah. like, <laughs> I think probably control it is strongest for me at the moment. Uh -huh. um, and I, it's probably a pattern from my life. But, you know, uh -huh. I've got a – it's like a cocktail, Brian. It's like two dashes of tell it, three dashes <laughs> of save it, yeah. and like half a bottle of control it is kind of what I'm drinking right now. But whatever – whatever your 
commitment is, if you're struggling with it, you're like, there's, there's a the metaphor from a, a book related to this work, the book is called Immunity to Change by uh, Bob Keegan and Lisa Leahy. When you're doing a hard change or adaptive change, as they would call it, you've got one foot on the accelerator. That's the change you're trying to make. But honestly, you don't even realize this, but you've got one foot on the brake. And until you realize what the brake is and what why your foot is on it, nothing's going to change. You're just going to spin your tires and blow smoke and make no progress. I'll give you an example. This is through the immunity to change process. Years ago, I was like, why can't I build a good team? Because, heck, I've read every book on team building there is. I've, mm. I've built programs teaching people how to build a good team, and yet I seem just woefully inadequate to, to build it. I know technically how to do this but behaviorally I can't figure it out. And I did this work around immunity change. And I'm like, oh, it's interesting. I've got a deep commitment to being focused on my own work, to not setting up structure, to not creating direction, to um, not feeling like I need to tidy up after people. And those commitments had been incredibly helpful and successful for me in getting a certain way down the path. It allowed me to write the book. It allowed me to kind of stay flexible with the business. It allowed me to adapt. It allowed me to build my own brand, all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. It had just stopped being useful for me with the next level I wanted to get to. Because the next level I wanted to get to is to go, I want to build a team so I can scale and I can work less hard and I can share the wealth and share the experience. I've got all sorts mm -hmm. of good reasons, rational reasons. Yeah. But what you're doing is finding those competing commitments that takes things a little deeper. That's really, I mean, I suspect that for people listening, the coaches and the people who are the personal growth and self-development junkies are going, they're just eating this up. And others are going, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> it, 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 is, it is messy and hard and a bit tricksy. I remember the first time I got exposed to this way of thinking and I was kind of being processed through it. You know, here's what you need to know about me. I'm a terrible person to be coached because... You know, I'm slippery, I'm evasive, I'm self-deprecatingly sly. <laughs> so somebody comes to me and goes, Michael, let me coach you. I'm like, yeah, good luck with that because I know a bunch about coaching and I can probably make it feel like we're having a good coaching conversation whilst avoiding all the hard things I don't really want to talk about, even though I kind of do. And I got taken through this process by my friend Molly and after about 20 minutes, I was just hiding under a blanket because I'm like, I don't, I don't know how you got me here because I am normally a black belt in avoiding the tricky stuff. But somehow you pin me down and we're having a conversation about you know, my need to keep control and my need to be self-centered and my need to put my own work first no matter what. And I'm like, this is so powerful and so embarrassing <laughs> and the catalyst for change. What a gift. <laughs> what yeah, a gift totally. friend, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's amazing. So I want to ask you about this while we're, we're still talking about the advice trap. This, I love this thing that you write in here about the fog of fires. Yes. Because as a coach, I've done this now for closing in on a decade, and I didn't have a term for, oh, that's what's happening. <laughs> then. I mean, I see it intuitively, yeah. but I love, will you talk a little bit about what the fog of fires are, like how you arrived at them and, and how you came up with such clever names for them? Yeah, I will. There's, there's a story there. So the, I have increasingly come to think that if you can do one thing as 
let's call it a coach, but really it's a person in a conversation with somebody else. Mm -hmm. If you're able to hold the space to help them figure out what the real challenge is, yeah, you, you, that is such a deep service <laughs> because we spend so much of our lives working really hard on stuff that doesn't matter so much. We get seduced into thinking that the first thing that somebody brings to a conversation is the real thing. And it's almost never, never actually is. And in the coaching habit book, one of the seven questions that I introduced is the focus question, which is, so what's the real challenge here for you? And I love this question and it's subtle in its construction. It's not just what's the challenge here, which is okay, but will get you a bit of a superficial level. It's not just what's the real challenge here, which is better because it says, look, there's more than one thing going on here. What do you think the real challenge is? But it's what's the real challenge here for you? And now what it does is it makes, it says, tell me why, where the struggle here is for you, what's difficult here for you in this, not just what's difficult in general. And when you do that, you get into this place of powerfully being able to both solve the problem but also have the person learn and grow from the experience because they're like, I see my, I see where my struggle is in mess, not just I see the mess. And that's where, that's where learning and growth happens. So I've just been like, yeah, let's, let's, if you can bring focus to the work you're doing, like it's, that is a far more valuable role to play than the person who comes up with all the ideas. Once you have the real problem, the ideas show up. If you don't have the real problem, it doesn't matter how good your ideas are, they're the wrong ideas to solve the wrong problem. So I'm like, so why, why is it so hard to find focus? Well, I came up with these fogifiers, because if we're trying to get clear, imagine the fog rolling in to kind of obscure the clarity. And there are different patterns of conversation that typically stop a conversation moving towards this focus and this clarity that, that I think is important. And I can talk to you about some of them. Like one of them is like big picturing. So it sounds something like this. I go, Brian, so what's on your mind? And he goes, you know, it's challenging launching a podcast in the season of podcasts. I mean, there's this whole virus thing that's happening in China. That's an interesting thing, global thing. And then there's the rise of podcasting anyway. Now anybody can do a podcast. And of course, there's just this whole divergence of the media scene and Basically, I'm, I'm listening. I'm like, this is really interesting. Brian knows so much about this stuff. And, you know, it's like, it's like media strategy and global relations and what does it mean to be based in Utah and all sorts of interesting stuff. But, you know, then I get to this point, like, wait a second, what are we talking about here? What I'm doing is I feel like I'm reading a, an executive summary of an HBR article rather than a real conversation with Brian. So what he's done is he's kept it high level, this big picturing. He's kept it abstract. He's kept it generalized. And as a coach, I haven't been able to encourage him to get into the, but what's the challenge here for you? So that, that's one example. The, the, the more senior a person you work with, typically, the better they are at the big picturing stuff. Then there's popcorning. I go, Brian, what's on your mind? He goes, oh, Michael, so much is on my mind right now. There is... Uh, there's the, the podcast challenge, and honestly, the team I work with to produce the podcast, what, Dallin, he's a bit of a nightmare to work with. And then there's the lighting in this room. It's making me sweat in an uncomfortable way. That's really difficult. And then I have this thing going on with my parents. You know, my mum and I, well, you know, say no more about that. And then, of course, there's the, the issue with the snow. I mean, oh, that's the thing. And I'm like, these are things that come in thick and fast to me, and it's like 
popcorn experience and I'm like, oh, I'm feeling overwhelmed as the other person in the conversation. I'm like, okay, look, uh, I know a little bit about podcasting equipment, so let's talk about that. And what I've done is I've been overwhelmed and I've gone to what feels fast and easy to solve rather than going, oh, man, Brian, a lot going on here. Appreciate the overwhelm you might be feeling, but have all of those things, you know, what's the real challenge here for you? And you're like, oh, well, it's the, it's my mother. And you're like, well, of course it is. Let's, let's go there. What's, and, and kind of dive into that. Or sometimes it's yarning. That's another, there's, there's six altogether, but these are, these are three good ones. Yarning is you go, hey, Brian, you know, what's on your mind? This is the, from the coaching habit, that's the kickstart question, a really good way to start almost any conversation. And Brian goes, you know, Michael, I was up at three o'clock this morning. The alarm didn't go. I've just bought this new alarm clock from Walmart. And it's weird because it's moved from a white lighting to a red lighting. And even though apparently that's better on the light spectrum piece, it doesn't, it actually is a bit disturbing for me because it just makes the whole bedroom glow slightly red. And it's a little bit like being in a horror movie. But anyway, I'm up at three. And the reason I'm up at three is because my bedroom is right next to the kitchen. And with the fridge that we've got at the moment, it's just got this new ice maker in it. And every time it goes raw and makes the ice, I'm like, oh, wait, what's that? Is it, wait, is it the monster because of the red lining? Oh, no, it's just the, the I think. So I'm up at three. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying not to check my emails first thing. But they're so seductive. They're like, what happened overnight? And who emailed me? And, of course, if you're, on the, on, if you're listening to this, you're like, wow, this is a really complicated story. And I wonder where it's going. And oh my God, we've been going 15 minutes so far and I'm not even sure what we're talking about because you're being sucked into this Homeric epic and you're like, what are we talking about? But there's part of you that goes, uh, you know, I, I, I learned a little bit about active listening and apparently that's good. So I'm, I'm trying to nod my head and look interested and go, mm-hmm, yeah, sure, what else? And Brian's like, okay, you want more? Sure, I'll tell you more. <laughs> yeah. And you're sucked into this story, which is like never ending. Yeah, and you don't want to be rude. You don't want to interrupt. Exactly. So 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes go by. The person who's telling you the story is like, I don't know why I'm telling you all this stuff, but somehow yeah. you keep going, tell me more. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm telling you more. Yeah. And you're like, I don't know why I need to know this stuff, but apparently this is what coaching is. I'm like, no, you, this doesn't work. So yeah. with yarning, you've got to do this moment where you're like, okay, here's the thing you need to know if you're asking the questions. You don't really need to know much. That's right. Because what are you going to do? You know, your job is not to offer the solution. Yep. Your job is to help figure out what the challenge is. And the only reason you'd be collecting all this data or this storytelling is to find out more so that you can offer a better solution. Yeah. That's not your job anymore. Anyway, sorry. And that's, something, no, and that's something that when I train coaches as, as well, and one of the things that it's like people, especially at the beginning of their coach training, will not believe is that you don't need to hear the story to help yeah. someone change or achieve a result. And I love what you've done throughout the book as well, where you have these prompts telling the reader that they can download, they can access resources. And I love this one in the fog of fire of yarning about you can download a list of interruption phrases at the advice trap.com. Exactly. So good. And and it's good because, you know, because I, because what happens when you're writing a book is you write the book and you're like, Oh, this should be a cool giveaway. Download this list of phrases. And then, what happens is once the book is in production and you're like, thank God I've written that, that was hard. Then you suddenly discover all these promises you made <laughs> like yeah. that. I'm like, yeah. oh, okay, what is my list of interruption phrases? Yeah. So what I've done for this download is I think it's pretty cool. It's actually a kind of uh, it's like a build your own interruption phrase. 
It's like mm. there's like four parts. It's like if you go to a restaurant and you're like, I, I can choose my protein, I can choose my vegetables, and I can choose mm. the broth, and I can choose the, the carbohydrate. You can construct a lunch bowl that's perfect for you. Well, I'm showing you how to construct an interruption phrase that will work for you every time. Yeah, that's so great. And thank you. And, and it hurt <laughs> even hearing you, you know, mock this one up. But the thing that I, I tell coaches is that you're actually not serving the person you're coaching when you're no. when you're letting them tell you this story, especially when it's repetitive. Right. You're like, who? and there's there's a profound insight in what you just said there, Brian. It's the question that everybody who's in that kind of more formal coaching moment should ask, which is, who is this question serving? Is it serving me or is it serving them? Because there's a bunch of times when a coach will ask a question and it feels like, you know, with the right amount of PR, you can frame it as this is to serve the client. But the truth is it's serving you because you're like, I don't know what's going on. I don't like the ambiguity. I would like to keep them talking for a bit longer. I don't know how to deal with what's showing up in front of me. It's actually a way of you kind of controlling the conversation in a, in a weird, subtle way. So every time, every time, for instance, somebody goes, why, why did you do that? I'm like, who does that question help? Does it help me? Not, not that much. Does it help you? Perhaps. What, you know, you're finding out data. So I love that you're pointing to that. <laughs> but also probably not that much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> really? Exactly. So, okay. I'm going to shift us with your permission to the enlightening sure. lightning round. Oh, yeah, good. Okay. Okay. So we did this last time we talked. And since that time, I've been <laughs> testing new questions. Awesome. I stayed up late last night thinking, <laughs> what would listeners, what questions would serve the listeners? So here's right. four questions. I'm borrowing Peter Thiel's famous question. Number one, okay. what important truth do very people agree with you on? That you don't need to have the answer. Okay. Thank you. Number two. Do you have a personal mission statement or any specific words you live by? Yes, I do. Would you be willing to share? i tell you what it is. If you're willing to share. <laughs> yes. yes. I am. The phrase that I've used for many years is my goal is to infect a billion people with the possibility virus. And why that is so powerful for me is it, it offers an impossibly big target around the impact I want to have in the world. And the, the metaphor of a possibility virus is powerful for me because it tells me to get out of the way and put stuff out in the world that spreads without needing to have my name on it or my face on it. Like I don't need to control or even take ownership for stuff that I might have helped generate and that has made people's lives better. Mm. You know, if somebody listens to this podcast and then goes and tells somebody about one of the fogifiers who then practices it with somebody in their relationship. I'm like, I've touched that person just a small bit yeah. and they've never heard of my books and they've never heard of me and that's just fine. Yeah. So that's a big motivator for me and it helps when I sit in a situation going, so what do I, what am I working on now? I'm like, well, what will get me closest to a billion people? Hmm. That's beautiful. Thank you. Sure. Okay. Number three. What's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making committed long-term relationships work? Well, part of it is just to acknowledge good luck hmm. because there are plenty of people I know who haven't had long committed long-term relationships and it's in no way a reflection on the quality of the two people and even their affection for each other. It's the fact that 
when you sign up for a relationship, you're hoping you, your paths don't deviate that much. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're going, I'm, like I've been with Marcel and my wife for closing in on 30 years now. And we've worked hard at it. <laughs> we have a shared sense of humor, which just tells you a lot about <laughs> what matters. Yeah. We have sort of some deep agreements on things that can be divisive, like, you know, everything from what art do we like? So we can kind of decorate the house in a shared style to, you know, how does money work in our lives and how important or unimportant is it? We got lucky around Marcella's content with me being the kind of person who's more career-driven and success-driven and, and is happy to play a role that's more supportive around that and takes the lead in other areas. But we just got lucky that we grew together and we grew in a way that was allowed us to walk on the same path shoulder to shoulder. And sometimes you just don't get lucky with that and you just end up going up by growing in different ways. And, you know, the idea of we grew apart, I think is sad and true and profound and not a blame piece. It's just like, you know, it's like, Brian, how, how different are you from where you were 20 years ago? It's hard. It's so hard for me to quantify. It's it's like I'm truly a different person, I think. Exactly. Me too. And and in some ways, I'm exactly the same. I mean, I still feel like an eight-year-old boy. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, I dream of feeling that sophisticated. But you know, <laughs> it's like you just change. You yeah. just, you know, stuff drops away. Stuff comes in. Yeah. You reorient to the world in different ways. And to get in a long-term relationship, you have to have somebody who's doing something roughly the same as you. So you can end up in 20 or 30 years time going, huh, you're still here. Well, that's a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that, that's right. And I think it's true that sometimes we simply want different things. Yeah. And, and when that happens, if we honor that desire and yeah, that's, that's interesting. But thank you. Thank you for sharing. And I love what you're saying because what I'm hearing in your answer is both. Yeah, there's, there is luck, but as you said, you've also worked hard at it. I mean, to have a three yeah. decade, in a relationship, that's we, we, it's not we, just like I, I, I don't. Well, think. it's not just like, but I feel like I threw the dice and I got. This. You know, one of the one of the best descriptions I heard of of marriage and so any any long term relationship, married or or not, is a good marriage is when you think that you're getting the best part of the deal, and mm-hmm. so does the other person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I, like oh, I got lucky here, and the other person's mm-hmm. going, "No, I got lucky," and you're like, ah. There's something there that speaks to a deep appreciation of just what that other person brings. It's a kind of a humility in terms of like, oh, man, I got so lucky. I'm basically, I am unmarriable to almost everybody but Marcella. So how lucky am I that I found her? Yeah, that's beautiful. Okay, and final question in, in this interview is lightning round. So we're talking about life's big things. Love, next is money. So aside from compound interest, What's the most important lesson you've learned about money or what's something that you're always sure to do with it or never to do with it? So part of what's different about my life is that I have a lighter footprint than I think many people would have around money. So I have never owned a car. I've never owned a house. I don't have children. And that points to something which is one of the things that I, I did work on early on in my life was to go, well, how much is enough with money? And that can be a really useful exercise. This is a bit of a, a muddled answer, Brian, so I'm, I'm going two different routes here. So let me, let me rewind and just go, okay, lesson number one is for me the value of traveling light. And, you know, there's a, there's a phase in your life or there was in mine where everyone's like, 
why aren't you buying a house? Because a house is what you do to accumulate wealth. And I was like, I, I don't really want a house because it feels like that would tie me down. And there's also something about if everybody owns houses, how do the next generation get houses? And I live in Toronto and it's like, I don't understand how any young person affords a house anymore. The average price of a house here is a million dollars. I mean, yeah, let alone like, paying the utilities and maintaining it, furnishing it. Yeah, exactly. But my wife was married before and she owned a house with her previous husband and she came into the relationship going, yeah, I'm never buying a house again. That was a nightmare <laughs> buying that previous house with that previous husband. I am so done on houses. I'm like, oh, really? Oh, okay. I haven't really thought about it that hard, but, and that was a great free act. It's like, oh, you don't need to own this stuff. Hmm. And then I do think this question around how much is enough yeah. is really helpful. And then there's some, there's a third lesson here. So I've got to a point where I have more money than I realized I ever would have. It's like an amazing, an unexpected outcome of, you know, having a couple of successful books and building a training company and the like, you know, I've, I've not yet traveled on a private jet and I'm fine with that. But part of what I'm now in is like, how do I spend my money? Well, how do I spend my money? Well, and there's two levels of that. One is, what's ways that I can make small, important improvements in my, my life now? I heard Tim Ferriss say, you know, what's, how, how could you spend $1,000 a month in a way that would vastly increase the quality of your life? And I was like, oh, that's a really good freeing question for me because I actually have $1,000 extra dollars that I could tap into and, and play around with that. So that was exciting. But I remember reading a an interview with a film director, a, a British film director whose name I can't remember. And he was saying, look, my goal is to give it all away so that when I die, I'm dying alone in a beautiful white room. And that's it. I've got a bed and, that, and that's it. I've given it all away. So now I'm like, okay, I've actually got to a point where I have the types of assets and, and no kind of you know, kids who need the money where I go – so what does it mean to give my money away and give my assets away in that broader sense? And I don't have an answer for that yet. I'm still playing around with that, you know, kind of trying to figure some of that out. What a beautiful inquiry to be in and how fortunate to be in it though, right? Ah, so lucky. I mean, it's like, you know, I grew up in a very, not, not impoverished household by any means, but it was a household that needed to track all the money all the time. And my parents made decisions about where they'd spend their money, including the cost of education, which meant that we just, you know, we didn't go on vacations and we didn't have this and we didn't have that. And, you know, there's some unlearning to do around how your family shapes your, your, how you think about money. And doing that work was really helpful for me. Wow. Well, thank you for that. It's a very, very, very insightful answer. I think that listeners will benefit from that. I know I did. That's the question my dad asked us, his kids to define for ourselves how much is enough and yeah. what will you do with the rest? Yeah, exactly. It's, so, it's, it's really good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Final portion of the interview then. So if I may just ask a, a few questions about creativity, the process to get the book done and then the marketing promotion of it. Yes, sure. Okay. So the first thing I want to ask about is this thing that people listening might not yet have a sense of if they haven't been exposed to certainly the coaching habit, if they haven't seen that, which is this, that you, your books are not just books to be read, but they're to be experienced. 
Yeah. Right. And you're very deliberate about your design and the layout and what, of course, what you put in it. Yeah. Will you just talk a little bit about your approach to creating a book? Yeah. Or this book, maybe more particularly, The Advice Trap? Sure. The starting point is to say, how do I write the shortest book I could that's still useful? Because I find lots of media experiences are flabby (laughs) and cram full of stuff that I don't actually want or need. Um, I, I admire an experience where I'm like, that was just crafted in a way that nothing felt excessive or added on. It just felt everything that was there was sufficient and did its job. In both the coaching habit and the advice trap, there's just an, an awful lot of rewriting that goes on and on and on just to keep trying to cut stuff out. I mean, the new book is 20, a little over 25,000 words long. And literally just before it went to press, I cut 2,000 words out of the introduction and just rewrote the introduction. And I was like, I think I can make this better and faster and get into it in a way that matters more. And then, you know, the design really matters. I think often when you pick up a book, you look at it and you go, I don't think I can read this. There's too many words. It's too dense. It's too kind of the blocks of text on the page actually trigger a a response. So part of the way this book is designed is to be inviting. Here's what I imagine. I'm like, this book will be in airport bookstores. The person who is one of my target audiences is a executive middle-aged woman. She's flying. She likes reading business books. She goes and wanders around. She picks up the cover because it's, it's pretty. She opens it up and flicks through it and goes, oh, this, I could read this book on the flight. It looks inviting. It's enticing. And I'm like, exactly. That's what I'm, that's what I'm, I'm going for. So I worked with Peter, the book designer, on this really closely to go keep opening up space, add a little humor in there, make it feel that this is an invitation in rather than a, a challenge that, you know, you're like, oh, read me if you dare. I'm like, no, no, I want this to be, I want you to be intrigued by this book. Yeah. And it, it did, it, it, it does that for me, for sure. And I love just holding it. It's a little smaller than a lot of business books. It's beautiful, the, the fonts. And the spacing, like you said, it's not yeah. off-putting. So with, with that, man, I have so many questions <laughs> because I <laughs> see this is Box of Crayons Press. Yeah. So you've self-published and not only have you self-published, it looks like you've created your own publishing company. Well, I mean, I've just made up a name and slapped it on, on <laughs> the process of, of publishing it. I work with a company in Vancouver called Page Two. For me, they work as a white label publisher. They give me, I keep control of everything. I'm the final, I'm the arbitrator, I'm the publisher. But they're the people who go, look, we've got, we've got a brilliant editor for you. We've got a brilliant designer for you. We, we manage the process of getting the book printed. We get the book into distribution for you. We worry about the minutiae that you don't even know you should be worrying about. They give me the quality of a published book. So when you pick up this, these books, they don't look or feel, you, you wouldn't know that they were self-published. It means that I have more flexibility, I have more speed, I control my IP, I can tweak the book every time I publish it. So I get that control over it, which I really like. And I make more money on it as well. You know, if a typical book deal, you're an author is normally getting somewhere between eight and ten percent of the cover price for the price of sulfur. So if you're buying a book for 20 bucks, your author is getting two bucks, and the rest of it is production costs and goes to the publishing company. What I get for my books is closer to 30%. You know, and that's after I paid for the 
printing of the company and after I paid for the distributors and I paid all those extra costs that are part of having a book in the system. So it's a more profitable book for me as well. And all of this means that you need some capital to be able to invest in a book up front to go through the process that I've gone through. You know, I think it cost me in the region of thirty to $50,000 to get all of that done, which is everything. It's like editing and design and distribution and the like. Also for me, and I know this has gone off piste in terms of an answer, part of why I'm confident about that you know, investment of a not insignificant sum of money is that for me the book fits into a ecosystem where I go, I make money by having people show up at Box of Crayons, the training company I, find, I founded and buying training as part of that. And my keynote speaking, people call me up and say, I like your books, come and speak. So I can also point to a really good return on investment through the back end of what the book makes people do in terms of spending money with me. Yeah, no, that's that's really smart. Well, and something you just mentioned was IP, that you give yeah. you retain control over that. And I see at the beginning, I mean, you're so great at naming things. And it looks like you're not only great at naming them, but also securing the registered trademark for them. Yeah. And yeah. we talked about this earlier in our previous interview about where you had this notion. I don't know if somebody gave you the advice to come up with original intellectual property. And I wonder if you'll just speak a little bit about that because I would think that's the sure. kind of thing that might be useful to somebody at the beginning of a project rather than trying to reverse yeah. engineer. I got this insight from a guy called Dan Sullivan who started a company called Strategic Coach, which is in Toronto, but also throughout North America. And Dan Sullivan is like, he's just a genius at creating stuff that then gets codified and sold and sold and sold. I mean, he's really brilliant at that. And I remember him describing the three phases of an entrepreneur or a, of a worker, really. The first is when I go, hey, Brian, what do you do? And Brian goes, I'm a dentist. And then you've just associated with what you do with your technical skill. The second phase is when you, I go, Brian, what do you do? And you go, well, I'm an entrepreneur who's in the field of dentistry. And suddenly things change because now you're like, I'm thinking about business. I'm thinking about scale. I'm thinking about profit. I'm thinking more than just what I can do technically, but how do I, how do I build a business and an infrastructure around a technical skill? And then the third phase is, Brian, what do you do? It's like, well, I create knowledge around dentistry. And, you know, this is where you create information that you codify and that you own and that, that then allows you to scale and sell your intellectual property or own your intellectual property. And that's when you then can go, I can get out of this business in terms of I don't have to be on the front lines the whole time. So you look at Box of Crayons, the training company that I, I started, that's now run by a, a new CEO. I play a, a role on the board kind of helping, supporting her, being ambitious for the company. But the engine for that company is intellectual property that I created around how I teach coaching and coaching skills and helping organizations move from being advice-driven to curiosity-led. And that's scalable and repeatable and means that I can effectively earn money or increase the value of stuff without me having to be involved in the day-to-day -day of it. 
Yeah, that's so smart. And again, for people who who are in this journey or think they want to take it, it's the kind of thing that to at least have some exposure to that possibility. You know, you talk about infecting people with a possibility virus. That's, to me, a really beautiful yeah. example of that. You, you, you want to, I mean, when you're creating stuff, you want to be thinking inherently, what's the IP here? What's the scalability here? Where's How is marketing baked into this? Because it just gives you a better chance of then going, how do I get it out into the world? Yeah. No, that's great. Well, Michael, I just have, I've got two or three final questions for you. And I know that might put us a couple minutes over. Fire away. Okay. I'll keep my very important person who's just (laughs) on the other side of the door waiting. I'm like, I'm sorry. Okay. Well, I I know you're the queen of England, but I am talking to (laughs) the Brian Miller here. Nobody gets in the way of that conversation. Well, thank you. This is a total aside, but I've decided to change my first name to legally change it. Oh, fantastic. What are you changing it to? Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So when I saw, especially your year, year of living, brilliantly, it inspired me so much. <laughs> no, but I decided around the time I started to grow this beard back in June. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, nice. the side. Um, Congratulations. Yeah. Okay. So will you please talk a bit about what you're doing to market this book? And perhaps this is a place to talk about the year of living brilliantly. So with most authors... When you, when you finally have a book, you kind of push all your chips into the book launch. You're like, okay, here we go. It's all about the launch. I've got this two-week or maybe six-week period where I'm trying to sell as many books as I can. I'm going, to get on the, I'm going to get on the New York Times list. It's going to be amazing. And it turns out nobody gets on the New York Times list or the Wall Street Journal list except for some A, randomly lucky people who built an enormous mailing list over the years. Or other people who go, I'm going to spend a couple of hundred thousand dollars to kind of manipulate things a little bit and find my way onto the mailing list for a week or maybe two. And part of what I keep reminding myself is, you know, the launch is just a blip. You know, um, Ryan Holiday, who is a prolific author, he wrote a great article on growthlab.com about how to think about perpetually selling evergreen classic pieces of work. Yeah, that's right. And his whole book about the perennial seller. Exactly. The perennial seller. And he's like, you know, I look at all my books and like less than 5% of the sales have come during the launch window. And I'm like, what a brilliant reframing. So I'm like, with both the coaching habit and this new book, I'm like, it's the long play. It's like, how do I champion this book for two to three years? How do I get people to notice it? How do I get the flywheel spinning? Now, in theory, that's easy. In practice, I get caught up in the whole launch thing as well. So there's part of me going, ah, the launch, try and make people notice the book. But there's a, there's a few basic things I'm doing. For the launch, we've, we've got a, a, a number of kind of bonuses to encourage people to have more than one book and to buy them early. The big thing I'm trying to do is, uh, you, people have probably seen this, you know, like buy a thousand books and I will send you my firstborn child because I'm so excited that you bought a thousand books. And I'm like, if you buy a thousand books, I've got a, I've got an award for you. But my goal with this is to go. If I can get if I can get five thousand people to go from buying one book to buying two books, that's a really significant leap. So the most valuable accessible prize in the, in the pre-launch stuff is a access to a, a two-week learning course with me. That's you know kind of exclusive, and you get that if you buy two two books. And I'm trying to make that a kind of an easy leap for people. So that's one key strategy, which is like, just get them to buy two books if you can. And that's with my mailing list. And 
you know, people like you who go, I'll put my podcast out the week before and people will hear about it and maybe show up at the, theadvicetrap.com to check that out. A second piece is just a B places where people find you. So lots of podcasts. You know, I've got a list. I spent two days going, what are the 150 to 200 podcasts that I'd like to appear on over the next two years? And I've just done a bit of research on how to pitch a podcast well. And sometimes I get lucky and people like you reach out and going, will you come and talk? And then some of them I'm like, I have to go and knock on the door and go, will you have me as a guest? And then the third piece is just trying to make it inviting for people to come and be part of my life. <laughs> so one of the gifts that we give people as part of the book, not just the, the download on how to interrupt somebody, which is a fun phrase, but I built this year-long video-based course called The Year of Living Brilliantly. This is before I knew Brian was going to be called Brilliant. And it's 52 teachers, a new teacher every week. And I just found a bunch of people who I really admire. Some of them are famous, like Marshall Goldsmith or Susan Cain. Some of them are not famous at all. Like yesterday, I recorded a video with Eddie Robinson, who's an indigenous leader here in Toronto. And he kind of did a kind of welcoming ceremony, which is going to be amazing. There's kind of a look, let me introduce you to some of the people who I really admire as teachers. And let me give you a year long course. It's absolutely free. There's no kind of like extraction of money here. But what I hope is, of course, people will get involved in that. And that may prompt some people to buy some books. Then I think the other thing that I've just started, which you know, may or may not work, is I am launched a series called My Best Question. It's a one to two minute video that I put out every day, every Monday to Friday on LinkedIn. So hashtag my best question and Instagram as well. So it's at MBS underscore works at MBS underscore works. And it's a one to two minute video of me going, Hey, I thought about this and this is the situation. And here's a question that it makes me think of because we talked about advice monsters way back when curiosity is the way you tame your advice monster and knowing some good questions helps you be curious longer. Oh, that you are a content production machine, my friend. <laughs> well, you know, I um, content is easier than you think, particularly if you, the more you do it, the easier it gets. And then thirdly, it's like, what, are the, what do I find easiest to do and how do I set that up to give myself the best chance of being a content production machine? So I have this little camera. I'm actually filming myself right now. It's called a DJ Osmo Pocket. It's really cool. It's got a little gimbal in it, so it actually tracks me. I find that I can just film a two-minute video in two minutes. I'm like, blah, 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 walking along, going to the gym or going out for a walk or in my office. And then I put it into a Dropbox. And then I have a team that puts in a little intro and a little outro. And then we came up with a schedule on how to post it. And it's like, build a system, find easy ways of producing it, and then go for it. Oh, that's awesome. And, and part of what I love about what you're saying here is that it's so congruent to the message you're delivering, where... You know, I've been around this industry long enough, personal growth, coaching, leadership, training, whatever, to know people don't always walk their talk. But right here toward the end of your book, when you're talking about be generous and here, you know, you're not just putting it in print in your book and shipping it out into the world, but you're very much living by that as well. Thank you. Yeah. yeah thank you. So thank you for that. It's a, it's a core value from, of my generosity. So I appreciate it being seen. Yeah, that's beautiful. Okay. So really the last things... First of all, I appreciate you releasing your books in election years here in the United States to help us all maintain a modicum of sanity and workability. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, 
no way can I claim that any of my books can bring any sanity to the U.S. election cycle. You guys, you guys are nuts, yeah. and you're on your own there. Well, I'm not. I'm not sure that anything will. But this thing about releasing on February 29th, if nothing else, it's interesting. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. So with that, the final thing I do want to share this again. I've gone ahead as a an expression of gratitude for you making time, sharing your knowledge and expertise and wisdom. With me and everybody listening, I've gone on to Kiva.org and made a microloan of $100 to an entrepreneur in Kenya, a woman so who will use this to buy farming inputs such as fertilizer and hybrid seeds to help improve the quality of life for her family and her community. So thank That's you. That's awesome. What, what a, what a, I love that you do that gesture at the end. It's, it's more than a gesture. It's like, I'm going to make somebody's life change. It's superb. Yeah. So that's, I think, the possibility virus right there that you've, yeah. you've made that. I love that. So, thank you, Ryan. Yeah. And if people want to connect with you, learn more from you, buy the book, of course, they can visit Amazon.com. But what would you have them do? MBS.works is kind of the new website where you find out what I'm up to. And I like MBS.works because it has three meanings for me. One is I produce stuff that actually works, so it's actually useful. <laughs> Secondly, it means that I'm working hard, like I'm you know, metaphorically and sometimes literally sweating it out trying to create cool stuff. And thirdly, it's a collection of the interesting projects that I've been involved in and I've built and kind of created over the years. So it's, that's the place to go. And then you'll find social media links if you want to connect with me or follow me there as well. You know, just a single quarter action would be mbs.works. Awesome. That's great. And Michael, what was most valuable for you here in our conversation today? <laughs> so love, this is the learning question from the, the coaching habit, the final question. I think the thing I, I, appreci- I really appreciate you bring a, a subtle knowledge to the conversation. Like, as you say, you've been in this world for, for many years. Um, I feel like you know my work really well and appreciate it for the very best bits that I strive for it to be. Mm-hmm. And so for me, this is something really nice to be seen and recognized and encouraged like that. Mm, that's great. Thank you. And what was most valuable for me was connecting with you as the author of this work. It's such a privilege. You know, it really is. I I wish everybody knew what you write about and teach. And it's to be able to have dialogue with you. It's really a gift. So thank you. Thank you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones. There's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.